The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Amen. Good morning. Praise the Lord. Oh, it feels good to be in the house of the Lord, does it not? Praise God. God is good all the time. Amen. Well, I have a couple of great testimonies. So as we pray for people uh, and lay hands on people, God's been healing people. So I wanted to encourage you with this testimony. And by the way, if you get a testimony or an answer to prayer, send it to us so we can share it with other people. So here it is. Wanted to let you know, I sent a prayer request last year for our neighbors on our street. So that's great. You can pray for your neighbors too. The husband has bladder cancer. Yesterday, the wife came over to let me know her husband, Dave, was told by the doctor that he could not find any cancer. You all prayed for him. Praise the Lord for his faithfulness. Hallelujah. And then uh, this last week, there was a lady that called. Her name is Ann Friedman. And she said, Pastor Ray, I live in La Mirada. I've been up here and, and heard you on the radio and then started following you. And you've been my church, you know, since of COVID and all of that. And so anyway, I had been through a major surgery. I couldn't walk on my own. I was struggling to breathe. I felt like, you know, I was just falling apart. But then, you know, lifting my hand as you guys prayed, I felt something, the Holy Spirit come upon me. And all of a sudden, I, I got out of my bed without any help. I, was, I started walking under my own power. As I'm walking, I realized I am no longer struggling to breathe. I've been healed. <laughs> so, yeah, she said, and I'm a graduate of Biola University, so <laughs> hallelujah. You know, the Lord is touching people, healing people. Now, um, I know this was mentioned, but I want to mention it to you again that we're gonna be doing 40 days of prayer and fasting. So we have this uh, kind of a little booklet uh, that'll be available after the service when you leave. It's on that side, on that side, and be sure to grab one. By the way, the dates, if you wanna note this and write them down, are February 17th, only a few days from now, through March the 28th. So we definitely, um, how many of you would agree that our nation needs a lot of prayer and fasting would be a great way to go, amen? So definitely join in this. Uh, it has the two words the Lord gave me for this year, visitation, a time of visitation, and restoration. Uh, so I do believe that God's gonna be visiting his church in a very special way in these last days. And Acts chapter three, verses 20 and 21, it is a time for the restitution of all things. Inside, every day it's got a little verse and it's got a place where you can chronicle uh, your life, your journey, your answers to prayer, and all of that. By the way, they're also available online. You can do this all online, or you can write in and we will send one to you. Um, but it's very important that we join together. And I'm just encouraging, uh, as your pastor, that, you, that everybody will participate. These are the 40 days, you know, kind of leading up to Resurrection Sunday, Good Friday, and, and the resurrection of the Lord. Uh, and I believe that it's gonna be an exciting Easter. Uh, this year, but we need to pray into it and we need to sow into it. So definitely uh, do that with me. And with that, let's open our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 12. We're going to look at the last couple of verses of Acts 12. 
And then we're going to go into the first three verses of Acts chapter 13. The title of the message is The Revealing of the Hidden. So let's bow our heads and pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we welcome you and thank you uh, for all those who are with us today in house, those who are sitting outside and enjoying the beautiful weather, those who are our online family and radio. Father, we just thank you uh, for all that are listening to this message. And I pray that you will give to us ears to hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying for such a time as this. And we ask all of these things in the worthy, precious name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. Okay, so um, the first life lesson that comes from chapter 12, verses 20 through 23 is this. Herod receives a divine visitation. So look with me in uh, verse 20. It says, now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. But they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's personal aid their friend, they asked for peace, because their country was supplied with food by the king Herod's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, It's the voice of a God and not a man, the voice of a God, not a man. And then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. (laughs) That was a divine visitation, but it's not one that you and I want, that kind of visitation. You know what I mean? So here's what's interesting. Herod... Last week, if you were here, has just beheaded James, one of the 12 apostles. And that pleased the religious leaders. So then he arrests Peter, another, you know, big fish, one of the original 12, puts him in prison and probably was going to execute him. But God supernaturally, as we saw last week, sent in an angel and automatically the gate opened and Peter escapes. But still, it shows us that Herod is after the church and that he, um, he's coming after them. Now, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12, let's read this scripture out loud together. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So Jeremiah 33, verse 3 says that if you will seek me with all of your heart, you will find me. God wants to be found by those who are searching for him. But if you turn against the Lord and you are fighting him and fighting his people, let alone uh, persecuting them, killing them, harassing them, then the Lord is after you. The face of the Lord is against all those who do evil. And I believe this truth is very well illustrated in the death of Herod. Now look, God doesn't always bring retribution this fast, but in this particular case, he brought it. And you can be sure the judge of all the earth will do what is right. Now, I want to kind of paint a picture for you of what this scene was like. So I want to show you a picture on the screen behind me. Uh, So this is a picture of Caesarea, uh, the city of ancient Caesarea. And uh, it's in northern Israel. It's on the coast of the Mediterranean Ocean. Those of you that have been with me to Israel 
We, this is one of the first places we always visit is Caesarea. And you'll look down here in the bottom left-hand corner is a 2,000-year-old Roman amphitheater that was there in the days of Jesus and in the days of the Romans. Now, a few years ago, that was just a big sand dune. And there were some kids playing and digging, and then they kind of hit some rock or stone. And, and then, you know, the, the adults came in and started digging more, and they went, oh, this is like, which often happens in Israel, a mound means there's something buried. And they uncovered it, and it was this Roman amphitheater. Now, what's important about this story is that, and, and so Caesarea is kind of like the La Jolla of the Israeli coast, right? It's a beautiful town, Roman town, and all of that. So what we find in these verses is that Tyre and Sidon, which are the country just to the north in Lebanon, they didn't have the same borders maybe that we you know, look at today, but it, it happens that the people of Tyre and Sidon how they were fed through the governance of the Roman Empire was from the city of Caesarea. That was kind of the Roman outpost of their empire in the Middle East. So the people of Tyre and Sidon were dependent upon King Herod to get their food, and uh, there, there was a problem there. So, and they were kind of, they were not happy. So they made an arrangement and they said, hey, look, if you want Herod to give you more favor, meaning more rations and more food, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna go to Caesarea, and we want all the people from Tyre and Sidon to come fill up this stadium, and then praise Herod, flatter him, you know, make him feel good that you, oh, Herod's the best, we love Herod, so that he'll give you more food. So that was kind of the deal. Now, we learn that from the historian Josephus, that this story, because it became world famous uh, and was talked about throughout the Roman Empire, what happened? Herod arranged that he would go to this Roman amphitheater and he came with a, apparently, according to Josephus, this beautiful, fabulous robe that had silver woven into it. So when he came in the noontime sun, it's packed out with thousands of people. He starts giving this oration. They're all applauding him, flattering him to be able to get more food or whatever. And the sun is shining and glistening off of his silver robe. And he is the ultimate narcissist. And the people start shouting, it's not the voice of a man, it's a God. It's not the voice of a man, he's God. And he's like, yeah, I am a God. And then the Lord says to the angel of the Lord, go take that guy out. So the angel of the Lord goes down and boom, bumps him on the head. He falls over and worms start eating his body. How cool is that? <laughs> that was the end of Herod. And what I want to say is that the church today, just like Israel of old, suffers, and especially the church, because of people like Herod who use their power, who use their authority to oppose the truth to oppose the gospel, to oppose God's work and God's people. I mean, literally going all the way back to the beginning with Pharaoh in Egypt, God's people have suffered under tyrants and governments. But I want you to know this, God is always on the throne. God will always deliver his people. God will vindicate those who put their trust in him. Can I hear an amen? Now, God may not do it in our timing. <laughs> the timing is not up to us. We must wait upon the Lord. But I want you to know this. God is watching over his people, and he sees everything that's going on and everything that is happening. And when he's ready, he will move. 
and we will know it, and we will see it. Now, I want you to look with me in the next couple of verses, 24 and 25. And the life lesson, I'm going to talk about it in a minute, but for right now, note this, Purim is about the revealing of the hidden for such a time as this. So look with me in verse uh, 24. So after all this happened with Herod, and the whole world's talking about it, by the way, his death was public. In other words, his judgment was public. The whole world was talking about what happened to Herod. Did you hear when he said, the people are like, you're the voice of a God and not a man, and then the guy falls over dead. So they're all talking about that. God arranged that. But look what happened with the church. But the word of God grew and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. And they also took with them John, whose nickname was Mark. So what was the result of everything that happens here? The word of God grew and multiplied. When persecution came against the church, and it was orchestrated through the level of dictators, wicked people like Herod and kings, God used even the persecution to spread the gospel, to spread the church, and to make it literally grow. And Luke is showing how the church spread throughout the Roman world from its small and humble beginnings in Jerusalem. What an encouragement for all of us today. If you look at the chapter, chapter 12, between last week and this week, we just finished. At the beginning of chapter 12, Herod seems to be with an iron grip in control of the church, and it looks like the church is losing the battle. But by the end of the chapter, Herod is dead, and the church is thriving and alive and growing and multiplying. And for the next 2,000 years, even to this day in 2021, now today there are 2.6 billion with a B lovers, followers, believers, Christians in Jesus Christ. Amen? And Rome is in your history books. It's in the past. The Roman Empire, literally at that moment, though no one could see it, started cracking and would crumble and would literally fall to the ground in rubble. But the church would arise in a mighty, wonderful, powerful way. Now, I want to bring an analogy. I want to tell you the story about Purim. Um, and so I have a, an encouragement for you that I would like in the next couple of weeks for you to read sometime on your own when you have a few minutes the book of Esther in the Old Testament. Now, the reason that I'm asking you to read the book of Esther, and quite frankly, the reason I'm bringing it into this story is, by the time I'm done telling you the story of Esther, especially if you've never heard it before, it fits exactly what was happening with God's people, the church, and Herod, this evil, wicked king, trying to destroy them and behead them and all the rest. It's very beautiful. And so, but there's a second reason I wanna tell you about this, because you know, as a church, God has really been, I've been on a journey, especially the last 20 years, of looking deeper into the layers of the background of the feasts of the Lord, the Jewish feasts, and the calendar of God. And of course, we have the main seven in Leviticus 23 from Passover to Tabernacles. We've been following those. But there are two other feasts in the Bible that are not part of those seven. One of them is Hanukkah. 
And we learn in the Gospel of John that Jesus attended Hanukkah in Israel. So it's a biblical holiday. And the second one that is beyond the seven is called Purim. And so Purim this year will be on our calendar, February the 25th. So I think it's appropriate that we look at uh, the story of Esther and the, what's happening with Purim and learn about it. Now, the scroll of Esther begins with the unlikely fate of a young Jewish girl who is living in the ancient Persian Empire. Esther is related to the Hebrew word for hidden. It's very important. The whole story of Esther is about God's hiddenness, but even when it appears that God is hidden, he is always right there. He's behind the scenes. He's the hidden hand moving circumstances, history, people, nations, empires, let alone individuals. So Esther is related to the Hebrew word hidden. And also, uh, our Messianic brothers and sisters do not refer to the book of Esther. Of course, originally they weren't books, but they are scrolls. And the Hebrew word for scroll, so the scroll of Esther, in Hebrew, the word scroll is related to the word revelation or revealing. So in a way, the scroll is related to the Hebrew idea of the revealing of that which is hidden. So there are secrets that are hidden, then there are things that are revealed, but they must be revealed at the perfect time, the right time, God's time, and then it explodes into this incredible story where it's obvious that it's God. Here's one more interesting thing about the book of Esther. I don't know if you've heard this before, but it is the only book in the entire Bible that God's name is not mentioned one time. And because of that, there were um, debates in ancient times among the rabbis, does Esther belong in the canon of the Bible or not? And there were some of them that said, no, God's name isn't even mentioned one time in the book of Esther. But there were others that said, yeah, his name might not be mentioned, but God is all over. His fingerprints are on every page, every story, every development that's happening. It's obvious that God is behind the scenes and becomes vindicated by the end of the story. Well, you know how the, the debate ended up. It's in the Bible. So it's a very powerful book, and it's a very powerful story talking about secrets, hidden things, that the populace may not know that are then brought to the surface. So I wanna read to you or tell you about the the story that happened. So you have King King Ahasuerus, who not only rules over Persia, the country of Persia, but he he owns all the countries. The whole world is his empire. He had his beautiful wife named Vashti. And so he had all of his, you know, the, the kings of other countries, and the other governors of other provinces, they were all in this big palace where the king was. And the king said, oh, I wanna show off. I'm the, I'm the king of all of you. You all pay taxes to me. Uh, we rule over you all. And he goes, I wanna show you, I have the most beautiful wife too. So he says, Queen Vashti, come in. And basically, uh, he asked her to come in and, and what's 
kind of hidden, but in the story is she doesn't want to come in. And the reason is, as it's been explained culturally, understanding of that scripture, what the king wanted, you know, he's drunk, he's drinking with his buddies, it's mostly a bunch of guys, and he goes, I'm going to show you the most beautiful one in the world, and she happens to be my wife, you know, ha ha, and he wants to show her off. So what he's asking is for her to come in and to show her off, she must take off her veil. Now, in that part of the world, kind of like, you know, Muslims that are covered wherever they're out in public, and the only time they take that off to reveal their true beauty is to their husband, and that's the idea of modesty. So he wants her to come in and be unveiled and, you know, prance around and show her off, and she's like, no, that's against my culture, it's against my, and I'm not going to be humiliated, and she, she denies him. All of a sudden, all the guys start talking. Wow, the king said he wanted Vashti to come, and she told him no. So you're with a room of a bunch of guys that are drinking, and they start elbowing one another and go, well, I guess we know who rules the house. They're with old king, you know? It's like she's got him. But then some of them start getting angry, and they start getting upset, and they start talking and murmuring, and finally it gets back to the king, and he's like, what's going on? And they said, well, now they're, they're really upset. Because if you let this stand that she can tell you what to do and you obey her, that's going to tell all the women in the entire empire that they rule. So what are you going to do about it, king? So he gets humbled, backed into a corner, and he says, all right, Vashti is no longer my queen. Woo! So he doesn't have, he has no queen. So now what are we going to do? He calls for a beauty contest from the young girls all throughout his empire, and they will, you know, beautify themselves, and they have months to do this, and then he'll have a contest like the Miss World, Miss Persian contest, and he's going to pick the most beautiful new young girl from obscurity to be the queen of the Persian empire. Now, what's interesting is the two main characters of the book of Esther, there's a Mordecai, who's an older man, Jewish, also prominent within the Persian Empire, who has a adopted daughter. It's really, he's probably her uncle, and her name is Esther. And he says to Esther, I want you to enter into the contest. And he prays, and he helps her, and he counsels her, and he puts her in there. And, lo and one thing that he tells her, though, is, now, Esther, dear, here's one thing that I, I'm going to tell you. Do not tell anyone who you really are, who your family is, or what your background is. Hide the reality that you are a Jew. Now, so she does that. And as the contest goes, of all the women who are lined up there, when she walks down that beautiful entryway, he says, I want that one. He picks Esther, whom he doesn't know is a Jew. Now, on Haman's, or on, on um, King Ahasuerus' right-hand man was a man named Haman. Haman is an Agagite. And the Agagites genealogically go back to a group of people called the Amalekites. The Amalekites were into witchcraft, sorcery, demon worship, sacrifice of children, uh, horrible, evil things. And God said, I don't want any Amalekites to be left alive. Take them all out. And he told King Saul. King Saul was not obedient to God. He didn't kill all of them. So guess what happens little by little through history? A descendant of the Amalekites is now, his name is Haman. He is the king's right-hand man. Like Joseph was the right-hand man for Pharaoh, now Haman is the right-hand man for the king. 
And the king basically let Haman run and rule the Persian Empire. And one day the king said, you know what I'm going to do for you, Haman? You are running this so good, man. He goes, I'm going to give you my ring, and I want you to take that ring out, and I want you to ride around in a chariot, and I want the whole nation and the whole world of Persia to bow down to you. And Haman's like, I think that's a great idea. So he gets that ring, the king's ring, he puts it on his finger, he gets his chariot, he starts riding around, and wherever he goes, whatever city, whatever province, whatever village, whatever hamlet, the whole world has to bow down. And the idea is that in those days, in that culture, you only bow down to a god. So Haman is like, they're worshiping me like a god. Oh, he loved it. But as he rode around, he goes around one corner, and there's one man standing tall and erect, and he doesn't blink, and he doesn't bow, he doesn't even wave. He stands up in disobedience, no honor. His name is Mordecai, Mordecai the Jew. Haman goes, it's always been those Jews. I got to get rid of him and his people. So he crafts an idea, he presents it to the king. King, we've got this one group of people, they're not like us, and they're not like our other nations around us. Everybody has their own gods. These guys say that all the other gods are not gods, even our gods. And only their god is the one god, and he's the true god. And we gotta get rid of them. They're bad people, they're evil people, wicked people. I want you to let me make a law that we're gonna destroy all of the Jews throughout Persia. The king goes, do whatever you think is right, Haman. You've been running things so well, go for it. So, the, the, you know, he, write, he puts it in writing. Once it is put in law, it cannot be rescinded. What the king doesn't know, because Esther has hidden her true identity, is that his own brand new wife, whom he loves, is Jewish. So Mordecai basically comes to Esther and says, Esther, it's time. Remember I told you to keep it a secret that you're a Jew? Well, now you got to tell the king who you are. Because that edict that's been put into law, they're going to use their army and their special forces, and we're all going to die. You've got to go before the king and tell him what's going on to save not only your life, but ours. So, if you have a Bible, uh, or when you're looking with me, go back to Esther chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 13 through 16. And it says here in verse 13, And Mordecai told them, to answer Esther, because Esther said, look, I can't go before the king. He's in a big meeting, a political thing. All the guys are in there. Only if I'm asked, do you remember Uncle Mordecai, what happened to Vashti? And she was rejected. If I go before him and interrupt a political meeting without being asked, it's the death sentence, unless the king finds favor and moves the scepter forward. So this is what, so she's like, I can't, I can't do it unless he asks for me. So here's what Mordecai said. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, okay, go, gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law, 
and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. Note here that the main point of the story, what will turn the whole story around, is that all of God's people began to fast and to pray. Just like I'm asking us as believers for such a time as this, we need to fast, we need to pray, we need to call on the God of heaven for all the battles that are going on. So then the queen puts on her best Hollywood dress, she fluffs her hair, puts on the perfume, does her makeup, and she comes walking in to the meeting, the politics, unasked. And the queen looks, and it's, I'm sure it was a very tense moment as Esther is like, is he going to just look away? Guards, take her out. So anyway, when the king sees his beautiful Queen Esther, he's moved with compassion. He goes, oh, there she is. She is so beautiful. He moves the scepter forward. Yes, Esther, what is your request? Esther used great wisdom. She had been coached by her uncle very, very well. And she says, oh, king, I do not want to interrupt your, what's going on right now. She says, here's what I would just like to ask. Could possibly tomorrow night, I'd like to host a dinner, and I want to make you your favorite food. I want to spoil you. I want to honor you. I want to bless you. I'm so thankful for everything that you have done for me, and what a wise and wonderful and amazing king you are. And the king's like, wow, I'm being honored by my wife, by my queen, before all of these people. And he goes, oh, that's great. She goes, one more thing. Yes, honey, what's that? I'd like to invite Haman, your right-hand man, if he would also come to the dinner. He goes, okay, that's a great idea. And Haman's thinking, wow, I'm being honored in front of all these provincial leaders and governors and kings of other empires. I'm going to be with the king. I've got his ring. People are bowing down to me. And now the queen wants me to be in a private meeting with the king and queen. Oh, he's so excited. Now, as uh, Haman has made this into law to destroy all of the Jews, he went to his gods, demons. He said, which day should the Jews be destroyed? What day shall we take all of our armies and special forces and wipe every last living Jew off the planet? So he took Pur, and, which is where Purim comes from. In English, it would be the word pebble, or literally lots, which in English means dice. So let's roll the dots or the purr and see what date the gods, demons picked to destroy the Jews. And guess what day it landed on? It landed on the 13th day. So the number 13 is not a good number because in the Bible it's associated with a day that was to destroy all of the Jews. And it was the, for the last month of the Jewish calendar, which is the month of Adar. And that's why February 25th this year happens to be Adar 13. He goes, that's the day. Now, Haman is like, wow, I, I'm going to go to a dinner with the king, with the queen. I'm getting honored. People bound down to me. I'm wearing the king's ring. And I get to destroy the Jews. And I get to, I want to personally hang Mordecai. So guess what Haman's personal project was a do-it-yourself project in the backyard was. He built his own gallows in his backyard to be able to personally hang his number one enemy, Mordecai, on. 
Every night he gives a new lacquer coat to finish. He's just polishing it, taking pictures of it. Oh, this is going to be awesome. I can't wait for that. So now the dinner comes. And there is the queen, and she feeds the king, and favors the king, and honors him, and blesses him, and pours love, and lavishes all upon him. He's enjoying, 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 and drinking wine, and finally says, okay, now, so, honey, what is your request? And all of a sudden, her countenance changes, and she gets really, really sad. She can't even speak. She's very emotional. Suddenly, I can see tears streaming down her beautiful face, and he says, honey, what What's, what's going on? Why, why are you so upset? She goes, because I'm going to die. He goes, what? What do you mean you're going to die? She says, because there's an edict that you have put into the law of the Persians that all the Jewish people in your empire shall be put to death on the 13th of this month. And oh, King Ahasuerus, I, your wife and queen, am a Jew. The king is like, what? You've never told me this before. You've held back. This is a secret. What in the world? Why? Who is responsible for this? Who would want to kill you and your clan and your people? And then all of a sudden, she turns to the other guest at the table. She goes, that guy, Haman. And so all of a sudden, he is just, his mind is blown. He gets up, and now he's, you know, coming out of a, being drunk and well-fed, and he just leaves. He's got to go out. He goes out under the stars, and he's got to think, what am I going to do? This is my wife, her people. How did he get into the law? I can't change the law. Oh, no, what am I going to do? While he does that, after Esther pointed at Haman, fear all of a sudden grips Haman, he realizes one way or another, king really loves Esther. He loves his wife. I'm in trouble. So he comes to her and he grabs hold of her dress. He's on his knees pulling on her beautiful dress and saying, please, Esther, have mercy on me. I'm sorry. Don't let the king do anything to me. No, no. Just as Haman is doing that to Esther and she's probably backing up like, get away from me, the king walks back in and he says, what? Are you going to take my wife to my bed in my own palace? Are you out of your mind? Guards! He calls the guards. No, no. Haman is saying, no, no. And he goes, I want that man to be hanged right now. And one of the soldiers says, well, actually, uh, Haman's got a gallows in his backyard. He just made it. <laughs> King goes, then put him on it. That's the big reversal that took place in the story of Purim. And literally... Not only was Haman hanged on the gallows he made, but the next couple of days, his 10 sons were also hanged. The whole family was wiped out. Now, what's interesting is, uh, if you look at the, the uh, verse, Esther chapter 8, verse 17. So, the, oh, here's what the, the king did. How did he reverse everything? He made a decision. He said, okay, look, I can't change the law I made, but I can add another law. So he made a new law. And in the new law, he said, I give permission to every Jew in every province of my capital. They have the right to defend themselves and to fight. And not only that, I'm going to send some of my soldiers to help them out. So when the 13th of Adar came, the day that was supposed to be the day that the Jews were killed and destroyed, it became the day that their enemies were killed and destroyed. God totally flipped that thing upside down. Now, 
Esther chapter 8, verse 17. Listen, let's read this. And in every province and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. Then many of the people of the land became Jews because of the fear of the Jews fell upon them. This is an Old Testament version of revival broke out. The whole Persian empire was talking about Haman, you know, his family, they always hated the Jews. Then nobody knew in the empire, his wife, his beloved Esther, the royal beauty of our empire is a Jew. So the king made a new edict and now they've all been wiped out. And the day that Haman's gods said the Jews would die, the 13th, became the day that Haman and his family died. And so you know what they realized? Wow, the God of Mordecai and Esther, he's the true God, and the other gods are false gods. They let go of their Persian gods and became Jews, meaning they became believers in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the only one true God, amen? So I want to just tie this in then. I know that right now there are many, many Christians who it feels like the Herods are ruling the day. It feels like the Hamans have got it all wired and they've got us in their crosshairs and they're persecuting and they're harassing and they're chasing and they're doing their thing. And it feels like, where's God? What is he doing? We're losing. It feels like we're losing. And I want you to know this, though you may not see his hand, God's hand is in every single detail of what's going on. God knows how to handle a Herod. God knows how to handle a Haman. And there are things that are hidden that God will bring to the surface and bring to light. He will vindicate his people. And what was meant for evil against us will actually happen to our enemies. Those who try to curse us will themselves be cursed. They will be judged. Everything will be turned on its head. Everything will be reversed. And you and I who trust in the Lord will be vindicated for our love and faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Now, I don't know how God's going to do it. I don't know when God's going to do it. But I think it's a good season, at least for us, to read the story of Esther and to remember, though his name might not be seen, God is on the throne. God rules. God reigns. The little puppets that are in their seats of authority are not the ones in charge. God's in charge. So be encouraged. Be strengthened. Be filled with the Spirit. God will vindicate us. And he will do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. And again, there was a season and a very critical moment where people needed to pray and needed to fast, and then we saw a mighty deliverance. Okay, so go back to uh, Acts 13, and we'll just close with the next couple of verses. So it says, now, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. And then it lists five people that were part of the early leadership of the church in Antioch. Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then, Having fasted and prayed, 
they laid hands on them and they sent them away. So here's what we can look at real quick in these three verses. Until now, Jerusalem had been the center of ministry and Peter had been the leader within the church. But now in Acts 13, from now on, Antioch in Syria, that is predominantly now Gentile, and it's probably a larger church than even the church in Jerusalem, Antioch would become the center, and the apostle Paul would become the new leader who would go from Antioch around the Mediterranean, around the Roman world, on three missionary journeys, planting little house churches all over Rome that would begin to grow and begin to explode, and within time, Rome would fall and collapse, but the church would be on the move. God is on the move. Now, Luke mentions five key men in the church. Number one, Barnabas. We know about him. He's the one that first brought Saul to the apostles in Jerusalem. But then, two men from Africa, probably black brothers that were members of the leadership team, the inner core of five, who oversaw the most important center of the church in Antioch. Simeon, He's called Niger, which means black. He's probably from Africa. And then Lucius from Cyrene. Cyrene is from ancient Africa. So what I want to point out is that we have two black brothers who are part of the five of the leadership of the entire church in the new center in Antioch. So whites and blacks, 2,000 years ago in God's family, side by side, shoulder to shoulder, brothers in arms, serving the Lord Jesus Christ. How about an amen on that one? And then Manan, who is related to Herod, the bad guy. There is, so listen, the bad guy, the evil guy, the wicked guy, has a family member that is not only saved and in the church, he's one of the leaders of the church. So he gets intel from what's going on in the government, he tells the church, and God uses all of that. What I want you to know is that God has believers in every strata and every part of our government, business, there are believers there. There are Mordecais among us that God will raise up at the right moment at the right time. There are Esthers among us that God has given great favor to, and they shall arise. And the moment will come when they have a private faith and character, and they let that secret out. I've been hidden, but now I make my stand. And God will use them. And the fifth one was, of course, Paul. These served as prophets and teachers in the church. But now, notice again, as they prayed and fasted, the Lord, the Holy Spirit spoke to them so that the fasting and the prayer got them in a place where they could hear the voice of God for a new direction that would change the course of history by sending, separate now Paul and Barnabas. You've got five guys, I want you to pull out Paul and Barnabas. The three can handle the church. I need those two to go around the world and light fires, light revivals, plant churches, for I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So they were fasting and in prayer. That's why I'm telling you that please take seriously, and I'm not gonna tell you what to fast. That's between you and God, you and the Holy Spirit. But take 40 days, pick something or let the Holy Spirit show you something that I'm going to put this aside for 40 days. And every time you think of, oh, you know, whatever it is that you were going to go for and you're, I'm not, okay, now I'm denying myself. Now in that void, I'm going to, Lord, I intentionally pray and I call upon your name. 
And trust me, God will speak. God will reveal himself. God will give wisdom. God will give direction that will change your life as well as the the work that he is doing through the church. So I leave you with Deuteronomy 6, 4. Let's read this out loud together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's called the Shema of Israel because the first word in Hebrew is Shema, which means hear. Shema Israel, Adonai, Eloheinu, Adonai, Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The first word is Shema. Everybody say Shema. Very good Hebrew. So it's translated in this passage as hear, O Israel. But did you know that it can also be translated obey? Literally in Exodus chapter 19 verse 5, the same word Shema is translated if you obey my words, not just hear. So what that means is it's a special kind of hearing. You're not just hearing to gain information or something interesting or something doctrinal or something from history in the past, but you are listening in such a way that whatever the Lord says, I give my body as a living sacrifice. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to do. Here am I, Lord. Hineni, here I am. What do you want me to do? I'm going to obey you. And if we will hear in these last days, It's going to be very, very important as time goes on the rest of this decade that you have the capacity to hear personally, privately, the leading and the guiding of the Holy Spirit. And then when he speaks to you, to be obedient, 100% obedient. And when you do, the Lord will be with you. The Lord will bless you. The Lord will watch over you. The Lord will use you. The Lord will take you out of your hidden place. The Lord will raise you up. The Lord will vindicate you. And the Lord will be glorified in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand, shall we? Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.